15th chapter of the book of Romans. I'm going to read verses 30 through 33. We're down to the part of the book of Romans that's kind of the personal addendum in the life, uh, gives us a little insight into the life of the apostle, practical stuff. How to make prayer practical is the title of this study. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I don't know of a subject that is more needed and less enjoyable to speak on than the subject of prayer. I'm talking about the prayer that works. What the New Testament refers to as prevailing prayer. It's a discipline. It's hard work. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to as a striving together. And it is hard work. It's about as much fun as, as changing a flat tire. I mean, it, it is, it is, it's not glamorous and it is difficult. Most of our praying is, you know, like an emergency exit. We kind of turn to it when, when we get in trouble or something, kind of as an emergency measure. And all the superstitions that surround our prayer life and the misunderstanding about prayer. Charles Schultz's Peanuts column, one day there's Linus on his knees doing his bedside prayers, has his security blanket over his shoulder. For some reason, he doesn't have his thumb in his mouth. In fact, he's fumbling with his hands. And he calls out, Lucy, I have made a remarkable discovery. And she says, with a kind of a disdained look on her face, what is it? He said, I've discovered that if you turn your hands upside down when you pray, you get the opposite of what you ask for. That might be an illustration of, of some of the ideas we have concerning prayer. That, that you know, prayer is kind of, if you hold your hands right, or if you say the right words, bingo, you know, you hit the jackpot, and prayer uh, is answered. It has absolutely nothing to do with prayer. Now, I want us to look tonight at how to make prayer practical. Before we do that, I want to show you how not to pray. So I want you to turn to the 16th chapter of the book, of, to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. There's a marvelous example in the book of Acts, chapter 12, of how not to pray. Let me set the scene for you while you're turning. If you can listen out of one ear. Agrippa is the Herod of Rome at this time. The word Herod, the term Herod, is a, really a title. Agrippa was, is, it means really Caesar. He's the Caesar of Rome. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great is this madman that hates Jews, and he's the person who ordered the decree that all children be killed when Jesus was born. 
Now Agrippa likes only the unbelieving Jews. And so he decides he's going to begin a persecution of the believing Jews. And the first person he puts to death is James. And he finds such approval among the, the people that he decides, well, I'll just you know, make this a, a, a practice. And he decides that the next person he's going to put to death is Peter, the leader of the church. I mean, he's the spokesman, and you go to the top, get the top man. So he arrests him and puts him in jail, and it's the time of the Passover, and he knows that in Jewish law you can have no execution until the Passover is is, is over. So he keeps Simon Peter in the innermost part of the prison, and he puts four guards around him. There's a squadron of people to guard him in the innermost chamber of the prison. Now while Peter is in prison, the believers gather together around an impossibility to pray. There's a situation over which they have absolutely no control and they're impossible. it's impossible for them to do anything about it. And so they gather together to seek the divine intervention of God. Seems like the thing to do. That the church gets together when there is a problem that is impossible for them to solve. And I want you to get it now as I look at verse 4. And when they seized him, they put him in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God, to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, to put him to death, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Now, if you're getting ready to be executed, and in the morning you're going to be put to death, before you're put to death, you're put to the half death, that is, you're beaten almost to death. What are you going to do the night before? I mean, you're going to spend some sleepless hours anticipating that. Simon Peter is asleep on the shoulder of the guards to whom he's chained. He has pretty... You know, he's pretty cool about this. He's kind of laid back. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. I don't know how that happened, but I just, you know, believe it happened. There's the record of it. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out, continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel, that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. He thought, Man, this is the greatest dream I've ever had in my life. This is wonderful. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. First record of an automatic door, like at Homeland, is walked up and the door opened, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately angel departed from him. Now, this is the fun part of intercession. Now, back over here in this house, the church is sweating it out in prayer, and they're agonizing, And they're doing the hard work of prayer, and they don't know this is going on out here. The fun stuff is happening out here on the street. I mean, doors are opening and chains are falling off and angels are appearing and the light is shining and Peter's being released. 
And you talk about exciting, but the church is not in on it because they're over here praying and doing this tough stuff. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, and where many were gathered together and praying. He knocked at the gate. You know the rest of the story, don't you? I'll not bore you with the details, except the woman, the little girl came and saw that it was Peter, and she went back to tell the praying church, hey, Peter's here. It's happened. A miracle has occurred. Our prayers have been answered. And they burst out into spontaneous praise and applause. Wrong. They said, couldn't be. You know, no way. You've seen an angel. And they thought that the angel of death had come to tell them that Simon Peter was dead. Now that's not the response you would expect you know, or want to hear from the story. Now why is it that this is the way this turned out? Well, because these folks are just like us. Let me ask you a personal question. Look back over the last 30 days of your life. How many of you have done any kind of agonizing or striving in prayer concerning a, pos- a situation about which somebody is, is caught up or in, in which someone is caught up of, over which you have no control, there is no solution apart from God, and you've been agonizing for them in prayer? Hello? Out there? Uh, just, just maybe, maybe the answer is none. The second question I want to ask you is, how many of you really believe that when the church comes together and begins to strive and agonize in prayer, it makes any difference with impossible situations? No, you don't believe that. If you really believe that, We'd have a trail made to this prayer room out here. We hardly get anybody in there. If you really believed that the church lays hold on the power of the throne when it prays, the prayer meeting of this church would not be the least attended. And you would spend more time in agonizing prayer. Now, I want you to look at the significance of this whole thing. It puts it together with Romans 15, verse 24, 25. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now Mark, John Mark was in this prayer meeting. And I have a feeling that when the Apostle Paul found himself in this prison-like experience in the book of Rome, the first thing he wanted to know, the first thing he did was to call on the church to pray for him. That's what this text is. Because John Mark had told him about this experience he had had in prayer concerning Simon Peter. Did you hear what I'm saying? I have a feeling that John Mark, who was on this missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, Monday got him aside, he said, I'm going to tell you about the most remarkable thing I've ever been a part of. 
One night we got together in church in a prayer meeting and we were striving in prayer for Peter who was imprisoned. It was a hopeless situation and all of a sudden Simon Peter delivered from prison a miracle in our midst and we weren't even aware of, we weren't even really expecting it. And when Paul found himself in an impossible situation, you know the first thing he thought of, I'm going to call on the church to pray for me. That's what this text is. Now, I want to give you tonight four ways that will help you to make intercession practical. Make it work. Four ways to make it work. Hang in here with me. Yeah, it's probably about halftime by now. But they're going to get beat anyway, so... Hang in here. Four things if you want to know how to intercede for others. Number one, there needs to be, first of all, an awareness of the need. An awareness of the need. Now look you back in chapter 15, verse 22. For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. Verse 30. So that I may come to you in the joy, in joy by the will of God. Now what Paul did was he made the church aware of his need. Now there are two things I need to say about this. Number one is, is that you have to, we have no crystal ball and we're not omniscient. And if you have a need, you need to make, make us aware of that need. Let me, let me say you something that's really on my heart tonight. I've tried this over and over again. I've never seen it happen. I've gotten in prayer meeting and I've said, now we've prayed for other people. Is there anybody here tonight who has a need you'd like this church to pray for, pray about? Not a single person has ever said, yes, I have a need. And I want my church to know about my need because I want them to pray. I want you to pray for me and just opened up to the point of pouring out one's heart in honesty and in transparency and making known the need. I guess it's because we don't want people to know that we are imperfect and we have problems and needs. Now, Paul was experiencing hindrances. Perhaps some, something has come into your life and it's a block or a barrier and it's keeping you from what you really want in life. Who, you, who is the best person to know about that? Your church. Secondly, you need to make us aware of the intense urgency of your need. Now, notice what Paul said. He said, I urge you. That's a legal term. It means to summons it's, a, it's what you get from the court when they summons you to appear. I mean, they don't just give you an invitation. They say, you come and, you know, you just show up. You do it. If you're old enough to be alive during World War II, you, you may have gotten one of those letters from the state, from the government. It says, uh, congratulations, hello there. You know, you've just been drafted into the army and you will appear. That's the idea that Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, I have an urgent need. And he kind of gets us by the throat and he says, I summons you to pray for me because I won't survive without it, without your prayers. That's the urgency. Someone has said, 
It's a great thing to go on knowing we're wrapped in the prayers of those who love us. Regardless of how far we are apart, just to know that we and they meet around the mercy seat of God. Young people, college students, isn't it great to know that you are wrapped in the prayers tonight of the people who love you. And sometime tonight when you get on your knees and you, you have your prayer to God before you go to sleep, you just have a night, you just know that some, somewhere mother or dad or some loved one, some other place, maybe far away, is, on, is at the mercy seat at the same time as you, and they're wrapping you in, your, in their prayers. Someone said that the, that the enemy is not defeated on the battlefield, but in the prayer closet. For if you want to find the secret of the Reformation, you must go into the prayer closet of Martin Luther. I love it. All right, second. There must be a willingness to get involved. Now, this willingness to get involved is prompted by two things. It's prompted by a family kind of love. He said, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love that the Spirit produces. And he's talking about this family love that the Holy Spirit produces among believers. You remember when you used to fight with your brother or your sister? I have a sister two years older than I. Mother loved her better than me. And, and so I worked her over a lot. I mean, we fought all. But you know, if somebody else came in, you know, somebody else tried to hurt her, you know who was the first person who stood to defend her? I mean, we'd go to, yeah, yeah we'll duke it out, boy, before I let you hurt my sister. That's family, family love. Who do you think about when you, when you hear a siren? You home at, in the afternoon maybe, or you're you know, getting ready for your, 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 your bedtime at night, you hear some siren. Who do you think about first? You think about your kids, your kids. And somehow a little prayer comes, a little, you whisper a little prayer, oh Lord, don't let it be my kids. You know, even though you're concerned when, when something happens to your neighbor's kids, it's totally different when it happens to yours. This is family love we're talking about. So that this intercessory prayer grows out of the love I have for you and you have for me, you see. And I have a preacher friend who, who knew about a woman in his church who was having a, an, a, an affair with a man. And he don't know how to deal with it. But he could see how it was running her life and running her family and running his, his you know, the, the, the relationship in the church. And one day, he, while he was praying about it, he just he came to this little idea. He called this man up on the phone. And, and he said, you don't know me and I don't know you and we've never met, but I know that you're having an affair with my sister. And it's my sister you're violating. And it's my sister you're abusing. And it's my sister you're sinning against. And I want you to stop today. And he did. Family love. And this willingness to get involved comes out of a willingness 
to engage in hard work. Now, he uses the word strive together. It's a combination of three words. The middle word is the word agoni, from which we get the word agoni. And the first word, the first part of the word, the first word of the threefold word is the word soon, and it means to meet together. So the word put together means to strive with them, to contend along with them. Look at what he says in verse 30. Strive together with me. Sun agoni with me. Contend in agony with me. Now, when you tell me, Pastor, pray for me, I'm going to respond, I sure will. Boy, I'll do it. You do that, don't you? When, you say some, when somebody says, pray for me, you don't say, oh, I'm not going to do that. You, you say, yeah, I will. Let me tell you what, you've just committed yourself to the hardest work on earth to do. For every time you start to sunogoni, there's going to be a barrier and a resistance, and that is the hardest commitment you'll ever make to anybody. You can go and scrub their toilet. It won't be as tough work as it would be to sunogoni with them in prayer. Hard work. I noticed something here when I was reading through this. Look at what he says. He says, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, while you're agonizing and striving for me in prayer, I'm agonizing and striving for you in prayer. I've never heard a missionary speak yet that didn't say, while I knew all the time that my church was lifting me up to God in prayer, I want you to know that I was lifting you up to prayer, to God in prayer at the same time. All right, third. Be precise. Be precise. Now, there are three ways in which the Apostle Paul is precise in his request for intercession. Number one, he said that I might be delivered from opposition. His knees knocked together just like ours do. He, he wasn't looking forward to, to, the, to, to what faced him in this cruel Roman world. And he's praying that God, that would, he's asking them to pray that God just remove the opposition. Just remove the opposition. There's not a Christian in this place tonight that will not face some kind of opposition. Second thing, he, 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 his preciseness in request of intercession was that there might be understanding in a sensitive situation. I love this. Watch. He says that my service may be acceptable. Now what he's talking about is that he's been gathering up this collection for the, Jewish, for the Jews in Jerusalem, the church there. And they're in poverty, but they're proud. And they're likely to say to him, hey, we ain't taking no charity, you know. And he wants them to, 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 to accept his, his offering that he's been collecting. And he's sensitive because he doesn't want to hurt their feelings or to insult them, you see. A little insight into the Apostle Paul. Third, 
His precise request is that I'll have joy in my accomplishment, in the accomplishment of my personal goals. Folks, you can, you can ask the church to pray that you'll su succeed tomorrow in your business deal. You can do that. You can ask the church, your, your high school friends, to pray that you'll be nominated to, you know, Miss, Miss America or Mr. America or whatever. You can do that. You know, Tom Landry used to pray that he'd win before every football game. He did. You could tell toward the last of his career that it didn't do much good, but he did. He did pray that he'd win. And somebody asked him, you know, um, why, did, why, why that? He said, the scripture says that in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God and the peace which passes all understanding keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. You know what he was saying? He's saying that I didn't pray, you know, just so that I would win, but I pray that God would enable me to win and when I prayed that, I had peace about whether I lost, even if I lost. You can pray that God will help you succeed in your accomplishment. That's not being selfish. All right, fourth, just brush this and we're out of here. There is restfulness in the will of God. There is restfulness in the will of God. Let me tell you something. It is refreshing to rest in God's will and the only place where you can have perfect peace is in the will of God. Now watch this carefully. There is no way that you can worry and pray at the same time. And when you come and you agonize in prayer and you place this before God in prayer and the church places this before God in prayer, you can go to sleep on the soldiers of the men, on the shoulders of the men who are going to kill you. Because there is rest and there is peace in the will of God. Now, the application, for the application, I want you to turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The application. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I want to mention the three, and then I just want to amplify a couple of them. Number one, prayer for others is top priority. Prayer for others is top priority. Number two, prayer for others is an essential urgency of life. And number three, it is the best tranquilizer. Now I want to amplify this just a minute. What Paul means, what Timothy, Paul means in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he says, first of all then, is this, that the first priority of the Christian life is your intercessory prayer. Now he's not talking about what you should do 
you know, in the order of worship service or something like that. He's talking about the fact that the most important thing in your Christian life ought to be your prayer life for others. The most important thing. It ought to be the most important thing this church does. Now you need to get this little Destined for the Throne book out that I recommended years ago and dust it off and start reading it again. Let me tell you, let me just read a couple of things out of this book. When a church is truly convinced that prayer is where the action is, that church will so construct its corporate activities that the prayer program will have, its, have the highest priority. Instead of leaving the prayer enterprise to be regulated by impulse, inclination, or blind chance, it will have the benefit of the best organizing talent, the most competent leadership, and the most sanctified dedication which the church affords. Unless a church is satisfied merely to operate an ecclesiastical treadmill, prayer will become her main occupation. End of quote. And he uses the illustration that, that you have in a bank, a bank, you know, the, the um, bank vault down there, and you got some money in this vault, and you got a key, and the bank has a key, and it takes both of them to unlock that vault. And he says that we have the key, it's blood bought, Christ has the key, God has the key, and the church has the key, and it takes both of them to unlock it. So what he's saying is this, that in cooperation with God in intercessory prayer, the church and God together open up the vault of His blessing. It ought to be the first priority. It is an essential urgency of life, and it is the best tranquilizer. We were talking the other day about, I think we were talking about Daryl's uh, deal when somebody came and stole his, all of his belongings. They were packed up in a U-Haul truck, trailer. And, but you appreciate me bringing that back up. And stole, had it parked, he was moving. All those precious things he'd gathered over the years, music and a piano his grandmother had given him, packed up in a U-Haul trailer, getting ready to move the next day, got up the next morning and it was gone. U-Haul trailer and pickup. And we were just talking about that. And we were talking about the fact that, that those days, those good old days, when you used to could walk down the street in any city, feel comfortable and safe, are gone. Those days are gone forever. And this is a violent and terrible uh, world we live in. And I was talking to some people out of Dallas the other day and they were talking about how violent that city has become as the gangs are moving in, all that good stuff, and all those gory details. You know what Paul says to Timothy? He says the only way that we'll ever have a society of tranquility and peace is when the church assumes its responsibility, prayer. You know who's to blame? You know who's to blame? 
for this violent world, part of that blame must be placed on a prayerless people. Let's, pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, God, give us a burden to pray for others. Prayer that really works. For I ask in Jesus' name, for His sake. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight who, hearing the call of God to his or her heart, would like to make Jesus Christ acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, and by faith come to trust Him and receive His gift of eternal life. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight who would like to obey God at the point of church membership or the Lordship of Christ, the commitment of your life to Him, maybe a commitment to be an intercessor and join the intercessory prayer ministry of this church. We invite you to come while we stand to sing.